You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is part one of the story of Ron Williamson. Debbie Sue Carter was 21 years old. She was an independent, fun-loving girl from Ada, Oklahoma, and lived on her own in an apartment. She had moved out of her mother's house when they argued about her lifestyle. Debbie had been brought up in the church by her mom, but as she grew up, she found that she liked going out late and dancing and flirting with the boys, living her life. And she worked hard for her independence, too. She had three part-time jobs, one being at a local bar on the outskirts of the town called the Coachlight. On the 7th of December, Debbie was at work, but it was quiet. She asked her boss if she could knock off early and hang out with her friends, and he said that that was just fine. So she moved from behind the bar to a table and sat down with some friends from high school and her close friend Gina Vietti, who she also knew through school. At one point, a guy that they'd all gone to school with, Glenn Gore, passed the table and hunkered down next to Debbie and asked her to dance. The two headed to the dance floor, but halfway through the song, Debbie marched away from him, looking angry. Later, when the girls were in the bathroom, Debbie told her friends that she'd feel safer if someone were to stay with her that night, but she didn't tell them why. The coach light began closing up at 12.30 and Gina invited the group back to her place to have another drink. Debbie, though, said that she was hungry and tired and that she was going to head back to her own place. As everyone left the bar and headed to their cars, a number of people spotted Glenn Gore again, this time near Debbie's car. Tommy Glover, who worked with Debbie at a glass company, saw Debbie pull open her car door as Glenn appeared next to her. He also knew Glenn from around town. The two talked for a few seconds, and then Tommy saw Debbie push Glenn away. A couple who both worked in the coach light, Mike and Terry Carpenter, saw Glenn standing next to Debbie's driver's side door as she sat in the car. They waved to her goodnight as they walked to their own car. Tony Ramsey, another worker at the coach light, saw Glenn on the passenger side of Debbie's car, crouched down by the open door as Debbie sat in the driver's seat. The two were talking, and nothing struck Tony as wrong as she headed back to her own car as well. Glenn Gore didn't have a car and had arrived at the bar with Ron West. The two had met up at another club, Harold's, where Gore worked as a bartender and DJ on occasion. They barely knew each other, but West had agreed to drive him over to the coach light. He ended up buying the drinks for the both of them, and at the end of the night agreed to give Gore a ride home. The two stopped and bought some breakfasts at a cafe called The Waffler, and then Glenn directed Roy to his mom's house, a couple of blocks away. But on the way there, Glenn decided that he didn't want a ride anymore. 
saying he'd prefer to walk and had Roy let him out near the Oak Avenue Baptist Church. Gina and her friends made their way back to her place. At about 2.30, though, she got a call from Debbie, who told her that there was a guy at her house and she was really uncomfortable. Debbie wouldn't tell her the guy's name, though, and the call ended suddenly, after what sounded like a struggle over the phone. Gina grabbed her stuff and was just about to leave the apartment when the phone rang again. It was Debbie. She was saying that everything was all right now and that Gina shouldn't bother coming over, but she still wouldn't tell Gina who was in her apartment. Debbie asked her to call her in the morning, though, to make sure she got up for work in the morning. It was a strange request, not one that Debbie had ever made before. Initially, Gina ignored what Debbie had said in the second call and jumped into her car, heading for the apartment over the garage. But as she drove, Gina started to doubt her intuition. Maybe everything was okay after all. Maybe Debbie didn't need her. And what if she was barging in on Debbie and some guy having a good time? On top of that, she left guests in her own house. In the end, she decided to trust the fiercely independent Debbie and take her for her word. So she turned her car around and headed back to her own home. The next morning at about 11 a.m., another close friend of Debbie's from high school, Donna Johnson, decided to call by Debbie's place. When she got there, she noticed some broken glass on the steps up to the front door. But her first thought was that Debbie must have locked herself out and had to break a pane of glass in her door to get in. She knocked at the door but soon realized that the door wasn't locked and went in. Immediately, she knew something was wrong. The apartment was a mess. The sofa cushions were strewn about the living room, and on the wall, written in some red liquid, were the words, Jim Smith next will die. Donna called out to Debbie as she made her way back towards the bedroom. When she opened the door, she saw that the bed had been pushed out of its usual place, and that all the covers and things had been pulled off. Then, from behind the other side of the bed, she saw a bare foot. She made her way across the room to the other side and saw her friend lying there, naked and face down, covered in blood, with something written on her back, again in red liquid. Donna froze in panic before backing out of the room and into the kitchen where she saw yet more words scrawled in red, before the thought that whoever had done this might still be in the house. She fled. Donna made it down the street to a convenience store and rang Debbie's mother, Peggy Stilwell. She told her what she'd found in her daughter's apartment, and in her shock, Peggy had her repeat it a number of times. Initially, she just couldn't make sense of what she was hearing. But when she realized what she was being told, she rang her ex-husband, Debbie's dad, Charlie Carter. No answer there, so she called Carol Edwards, who lived near to her daughter. Peggy told her something was very wrong, and asked if Carol would check in on her daughter. As Carol made her way to the apartment, Peggy got through to Charlie, who also raced to Debbie's place. Carol and then Charlie entered the apartment and saw Debbie's body lying on the floor, and the state her place was left in. They and Donna were waiting on the steps of the apartment when the emergency services arrived. The paramedics were first on the scene and rushed into the building. One quickly returned to the steps, though, and promptly vomited. 
Someone called Peggy's sister, Glenda, and had her drive over to her sister's house to break the news. Peggy had started to walk to her daughter's house after her car refused to start, in a total panic. And when she saw her sister's face, she collapsed in the street. Soon Debbie's place was swarmed with police, paramedics, local prosecutors and onlookers. Detective Dennis Smith arrived from the local station and secured the scene. He had been with the Ada Police Department for over 17 years and knew exactly what needed to be done. He cleared the apartment of everyone and began his work. In the living room, the cushions on the sofa were strewn around the room and there was a flannel nightgown with a Walmart tag lying in front of it. The message on the wall had been written in red nail polish. On the floor of the kitchen were the boots and jeans Debbie Sue had been wearing the night before, and the message on the table was scrawled in ketchup. It said, don't look for us or else. For was misspelled as F-O-R-E, and else as E-A-L-S-E. When he went into the bedroom, he noted the bed was partially blocking the door, and it looked as if nothing had been left in its right place. There had obviously been a struggle. On Debbie's back, again in ketchup, was written Duke Graham, G-R-A-M. The detective knew who he was, another local. Under Debbie's body was a belt with a large silver buckle with her name on it and an electrical cord. Officer Mike Kieswetter was photographing the scene as Detective Smith began bagging all of the items that had been thrown around the place as well as hair that he found in the apartment, some on Debbie's body, some on the floor, and some on the bed. He also bagged a pair of torn underwear, a pack of Marlboro cigarettes, an empty 7-Up can, cigarette butts, a glass bottle from the kitchen, the telephone, and a bottle of Del Monte ketchup found wrapped in a bedsheet near to Debbie's body. It was missing its cap. Then Detective Smith took fingerprints from the front door, the windows, every wooden surface he could find in the bedroom, from the kitchen, and even from Debbie's car. By 12.30 that afternoon, the first OSBI, Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations agent, had arrived, Gary Rogers. He'd worked with Smith before. He noticed a bloodstain on the wall, down near to the baseboard. It looked to be a partial palm print, and he had that piece of plaster cut out of the wall and preserved. Both investigators thought that, from the state of the scene and the state of Debbie's body, that they were going to be looking for more than one person. The amount of damage inflicted seemed like way too much for one person against the 5'8", 130-pound woman, who, given her personality, would have definitely put up a fight. When the local medical examiner arrived on scene, he gave his initial opinion that Debbie had died from strangulation, and the body was removed by a local funeral home to the state medical examiner's office. Quickly, news of the attack on Debbie and her death got out. Her male acquaintances were asked to report to the local police department to give fingerprints and samples of saliva, head and pubic hair. They began to show up immediately. Not one of them refused the request. 
Some were contacted directly by police after taking a list of names from friends and family, and some just heard about it on the grapevine. One of those was Glenn Gore. He'd been back at work at Harold's when he found out and immediately went to the station to give his account of seeing Debbie the night before. He told the police that they'd talked about painting Debbie's car, but that was about it. He said he'd never even been to Debbie's apartment. Somehow, among the stream of young men who were answering questions and handing over samples, Glenn never did have his fingerprints taken, nor were any of his body samples retrieved at that time. The next day, on December 9th, Debbie's autopsy was performed. In addition to the ketchup on her back, the word dye had been written in red nail polish across her chest. There were small bruises all over her arms, face, and chest, and larger abrasions and bruises across her neck. It didn't appear that the cord or belt had been used as binding at any point. There was no sign of this at the examination. There were cuts on her lips, and a washcloth had been shoved far down into her throat. There was bruising to her vagina, and her rectum was dilated. At this point in the examination, the cap from the bottle of ketchup was found. She had suffered from collapsed lungs, but there was no sign of any other trauma, no bleeding on the brain or anything like that. Her blood alcohol level was 0.04, which was a pretty low reading. Her fingernails were clipped and preserved as evidence, and swabs were taken, which showed the presence of spermatozoa. Hair samples were taken from her body also. Debbie had died from asphyxia caused either from the washcloth or from having the electrical cord around her neck, or some combination of both. Meanwhile, the police investigation continued. Twenty-three names of people who were in the coach light the night Debbie had been killed were gathered, and each person was interviewed. The police didn't need time to track down the names that had been scrawled at the crime scene, however. They were well known in the area. Duke Graham and his wife Johnny had a nightclub in Ada, and Jim Smith was a small-time criminal who was in prison at the time of the murder. Duke Graham quickly turned up at the local police department and provided a solid alibi. Whoever had murdered Debbie for some reason wanted to try and involve those two, though, but the police struggled to find a suspect. No one would have wanted to harm Debbie. She was such a nice, friendly girl who had no enemies. Everyone they spoke to had been helpful. There was no person on their list that stood out as someone who could have done such a thing. That is, until three months into their investigation, when Robert Jean Detheridge was interviewed in March 1983. He had just been released from Pontotoc County Jail after a short stint for a DUI. The county jail had been full of talk of the murder, it being the most serious and shocking crime to have occurred in the small town of Ada of late. Detheridge had shared a cell with a man named Ron Williamson, and the two had not got along at all. Ron had been moved to another cell after they got physical with one another. But Detheridge reported to the police that the talk of Debbie's murder seemed to really get to Ron and that he had a suspicion that Ron had something to do with Debbie's death. Ron was known to the local Ada cops. He was known to most of the people in Ada, for that matter. He'd come from a relatively poor background, but as a kid had showed a special talent for baseball, 
and had briefly gone off to play in the minor leagues with the hopes of making it big and becoming a sports star. But he'd gotten an injury and had been cut from his team, not once, but three times. He'd always had a blustery personality. He was charming, but his temper flared easily, and he had severe mood swings. When he was younger, he made up for that by being intensely likable, both in his family and amongst his peers. But after the failure of his baseball career and going through a divorce at the tender age of 23, Ron's moods got progressively worse. He moved up north to Tulsa, where he drank a lot and did a lot of drugs and spent his time picking up women. This eventually led to trouble for him in Tulsa. In the space of just five months, he'd been accused and charged in two separate rape cases. He denied the charges and fought them in court, where each time he was found innocent. But of course, that meant very little in terms of what people thought of him. He left Tulsa as his behavior got more and more erratic, with what little reputation he had left ruined. From then, he was in an ever-increasing decline into mental ill health. He couldn't keep a job. He slept most of the time. He reported hearing voices. He was diagnosed as manic-depressive, and then as schizophrenic, and then as having dysthymia. He wouldn't take his medication, and every attempt to get him sober in a clinic or be treated for his illness ended in Ron leaving the facility after only a few days. He bounced between his mother's or his sister's houses, and friends that would still have him never staying long in one place because he wore out his welcome really quick. Most of the time he lived in an apartment of sorts in his mother's garage, where he was only minutes' walk from Debbie Carter's place if you cut down a back alley. He couldn't keep a steady job, he was loud and abrasive and constantly needed to be the centre of attention. He kept odd hours and borrowed money to go out and drink. The coach light in Ada was a regular spot for him. People said you knew when Ron was in a bar because you'd hear him going on about himself and his baseball career. He fancied himself a ladies' man and he'd try it on with the girls there. But by his late twenties, he'd gone from a well-dressed and confident future athletic star to an unkempt and dirty, disheveled man who only left his house to end up in bars bragging that he'd once been a famous baseball player and he was incapable of going more than a few months without a DUI or a public disorder offence. The police in Ada knew him well, all right. So in March, Detective Dennis Smith and Mike Keyswater headed out to the Williamson place and questioned Ron with his mother, Juanita. He said he didn't think he knew Debbie, that of course he knew the name because the murder was all the town was talking about, but that he wasn't sure if he'd ever actually seen her. When asked where he was on the night of the 7th of December, 1982, Juanita pulled out her diary and told the detectives that Ron had come home at 10.30 that night. Ron agreed to give samples to the police and followed them to the station after the interview was over. Three days later, the police turned up at Ron's again, asking the same questions. They were also looking into one of Ron's acquaintances, Dennis Fritz. He was new in town, and when the police came to question him, he said he'd never seen Debbie, didn't know where she lived, and had never driven Ron to the bar. Nevertheless, the police were working under the theory that two people had committed this crime, and so it seemed anyone who could be linked to Ron was fair game. 
Dennis and Ron had started hanging around with one another after Dennis saw Ron playing guitar outside a convenience store in the town. He was in and out of Ada because his daughter lived there with his grandmother while Dennis worked in a school a few towns over. Dennis's wife had been murdered a few years previously, and he'd never really gotten himself together after that. He thought Ron was a weird guy, but he liked hanging out with him, playing guitars and drinking. They soon started to go out to clubs together, and Dennis discovered Ron could get him into a whole heap of trouble. At one point, Ron stole his car, and Dennis had to report it to the police. He stayed away from him after that, but the local police remembered that they had had a friendship. So, Dennis Fritz got a call from the Ada police. They asked him to come down to the station and to answer a few questions. And Dennis went over, not knowing at all what it might be about. They asked him about Ron and Debbie and where he had been on the 7th of December. He said he'd never met Debbie and would have to think on where he was that day, because he wasn't sure. They asked him to take a polygraph test. Dennis didn't want to. He was a science teacher and knew that they weren't considered reliable, but he didn't want to look suspicious, so he agreed. When the day came to travel to Oklahoma City to take the test, though, he was incredibly nervous, and so he took a Valium to steady his nerves. After it was over, the OSBI agents told him that he'd failed, spectacularly. He told them that that was impossible, and eventually admitted that he'd taken the drug. Another test was arranged for him to take in Ada. Again, Dennis was incredibly nervous and was told that he had failed the test spectacularly yet again. He was then interrogated by the police for a number of hours with the full good cop, bad cop routine and everything. He continued to deny any knowledge of the crime and even agreed to hand over saliva and hair samples, no problem. He was innocent and had nothing to do with Debbie Carter's death. Problem was, the police didn't believe him. They were even more suspicious when they found out he'd called in sick to work the day after the murder. They began sitting outside his house and watching his every movement, convinced that good old police work would help them crack the case. When they found out about a conviction he had in 73 for growing marijuana, they called his school and told them about it, and mentioned that he was under investigation in a murder case. Dennis was promptly fired. As 1983 went on, so did the police investigation, and so did Ron's decline into ill health. He got yet another diagnosis of bipolar disorder that summer, but his family couldn't afford treatment, and Ron wouldn't have gone anyway. He tried to get himself into East Central University's vocational program to study chemistry or physical education, and applied for financial aid as well, which was granted. But when Ron showed up with two rather rough-looking buddies to pick up his check, he was told he'd need to wait in line to get it signed by a staff member. Impatient, he instead forged the signature and cashed the check for $300. Someone saw him doing this and knew his reputation around town and told the police. The next day, he was picked up for forgery. This was a felony and carried a possible eight-year sentence. He got sober while waiting in jail, but with no medical treatment, his mental health declined even further. He was questioned again on the 9th of November in relation to the Debbie Carter case and took yet another polygraph test. 
In December, Glenn Gore was brought back into the police station to give another statement. His story was much the same, except this time he mentioned a new detail. He had danced with Debbie Carter because she had asked him to, because Ron Williamson had been bothering her. It was another scant detail in the case against Ron, and by extension Dennis Fritz. But all the details were scant at that point. None of their fingerprints had been found at the scene, no one had seen them nearby or heard anything suspicious that night. The hair evidence had yet to be tested, so they might have something going for them there, but who knew? That kind of evidence could be hit and miss. And yet, the Ada detectives were sure that these two were the guys. They'd killed Debbie Carter. In January 1984, Ron pled guilty to the fraud charge and was sentenced to three years. Meanwhile, no further progress was made on Debbie's case, and while it slowly went cold with the police unable to find more evidence against their prime suspects, another terrible crime was committed in Ada. Denise Haraway was a married 24-year-old student. Her husband Steve was from Ada, and they both studied at East Central University and lived in an apartment in the town owned by Steve's dad, who was a local dentist. Denise worked part-time at McAnally's convenience store, and on Saturday night, the 28th of April, 1984, Denise went missing from her work. At about 8.30 that night, a customer was walking into the store as a couple walked out. They looked totally normal, a pretty girl with her boyfriend who had his arm around her waist. They got into a beat-up old truck and left the parking lot as the other customer went into the store. It was empty, and the cash drawer was open. There was an open beer can on the countertop, and a cigarette was still burning in an ashtray. On the floor, there was a brown purse and an open textbook. The guy walked around trying to find the clerk, but there was no one. He figured it might have been a robbery, and so he called the police. They arrived and had a look around, and pulled a driver's license out of the purse. It belonged to Denise Haraway, and when they showed it to the customer, he said that yeah, that was the girl he'd seen. The cops called Detective Smith, who was asleep in bed at that point of the night, who told them to treat it like a crime scene before rolling over and going back to sleep. But they didn't. The manager of the store came in and started tidying up. He threw out the beer can and the cigarette butts and checked the other registers. All the other money was intact. There had been $400 under the counter, ready for transfer to the untouched safe, and $150 in the second register. Then Steve Haraway got a call in his home. He was to come to McAnally's. He had to identify his wife's belongings and give a description of what she had been wearing to the police. Despite the fact that the crime scene had been badly handled, the search for Denise got underway quickly the next day as the sun came up, with local volunteers turning up in force. A clerk at another store down the street remembered seeing two suspicious-looking guys in and around the time Denise disappeared. They were in their 20s, both had long hair, and had been acting weird. They'd played a game of pool at her place before leaving in an old pickup, and she'd been relieved to see them go. they creeped her out. But nothing came of the search, and by Monday, missing posters with Denise's face were going up all over Ada. 
there was a composite sketch drawn up of the two weird guys, and the customer at McAnally's said one kinda looked like the guy he saw. But there were still no clues as to where Denise might be. The sketches and the story of Denise's disappearance were handed over to the local media, and after the nightly news, finally tips began to come in to the Ada Police Department. Two names in particular were mentioned a lot, both in over 30 tips each. Billy Charlie, who went to the station and gave a statement, including an alibi, and Tommy Ward, who was familiar to the Ada Police Department. He had a couple of misdemeanors. He came in too and said he'd been fishing with a friend, Carl Fontenot, and then went to a party that night. It was noted during the interview that it looked like Tommy had recently cut his hair himself. It was uneven and kind of hacked off, so the police took a picture of it. Then they called Carl Fontenot to check out the story, and they wanted him to come in too, but he never turned up. Soon the tip stopped coming in, and searches stopped happening, and it was suspected that Denise would not be coming home. But the police were no closer to figuring out why, and hoped that something would happen to crack this case too. In early October 1984, it looked as if the police may have gotten their break. A young man, Jeff Miller, arrived at the station and told Detective Smith that he had some information for him. Two girls had told him about a party they were at the night Denise went missing. He hadn't been there himself, but the girls said that they'd all been down by the Blue River and they'd run out of beer. Tommy Ward volunteered to go and get some and borrowed a truck from a girl named Jeanette Roberts. The girl said he'd been gone for a few hours and when he got back, he was crying about how he'd done something awful. He'd driven into Ada, kidnapped the clerk from McAnally's and had raped and killed her. Detective Smith pursued this lead, though he never asked why the girls hadn't come forward or why it had taken Jeff Miller five months to turn up at the police department. He first found the two girls who had left the Ada area already. They told him that they weren't at a party that night and that they'd never been at a party where Tommy Ward was present. The next port of call was Jeanette Roberts. She lived in Norman with her husband Mike and confirmed that she, Mike, Tommy, and Carl Fontenot had partied down at the Blue River, but she was pretty sure that they hadn't been there the night that Denise went missing. She definitely never heard Tommy tell a tale about killing the clerk. That hadn't happened. Tommy happened to be living with the Robertses. He wasn't keen to talk to the police, but eventually agreed. He'd already talked to them while he was back in Ada, and had actually left because he was sick of people remarking that he bore a similarity to the sketches drawn up of one of the suspects in Denise's disappearance. He'd been in trouble before, nothing serious, but with all that over his head, he had figured he'd best move on. So when the cops turned up in Norman asking questions, Tommy didn't want to go to the station to give a statement, and it took a bit of convincing to get him there. He was read his rights and a video recorder was turned on. The Ada detectives were particularly interested in the statement that he had given five months before. Since then, his story had changed. He said he'd worked at his mom's and then gone to a party, getting home at about 4 a.m. that night. But he'd initially said that this had happened the day before. 
The detectives were immediately on him, asking why he had lied and why they should trust that this was what had actually happened this time. They accused him outright of going to rob McAnally's and then abducting Denise. They asked him what he'd done and where he'd taken her. He denied everything. Then they asked him to take a polygraph. Tommy said sure. He hadn't done it and he had nothing to fear. And at least this might get the cops off his back. So on the 18th of October, Tommy headed to the OSBI office in Oklahoma City for his polygraph. After the test, he was told that he'd failed it and that they had some questions for him. Detective Smith was joined by Agent Featherstone. Tommy told them both that there was no way he had flunked that test. He hadn't done anything. They had the wrong guy, and there must be some sort of mistake. This whole thing had him nervous. He told them that he'd even had a bad dream in the run-up to the test. Featherstone was interested in this, and he asked what the dream was about. Tommy described it. He said he'd been sitting in a truck with a girl and two other guys out by the old power plant in Ada. One of the faceless guys had tried to kiss the girl and she said no, and Tommy had told him to leave her alone. He'd wanted to go home then, and the second guy said, you're already there, and next thing Tommy knew, he was at home, washing black liquid off his hands. That was it. Featherstone honed in on this dream and said that the guys in the dream were Carl Fontenot and Odell Tidsworth, and they'd been with him the night Tommy took Denise. Tommy continued to deny all of this, saying he didn't even know Odell, but the questioning got more and more aggressive. After hours of an unrecorded interrogation, Tommy realized that he had to give them something, or that this would never stop. As the detectives put questions to him about what had supposedly happened in this dream, Tommy began to agree with them. And then they began to go over details, over and over, details that had never featured in Tommy's dream. As different locations were mentioned, calls went out to the police and Ada to go and search there for Denise's body. But of course, no body was found. After hours of this, with no break, no food, nothing to drink, the officers finally turned on the video recorder. Tommy knew what the cops wanted him to say at this point, and in a haze he went over the story that had come from over four hours of questioning. He kept tripping up on Odell's last name, Tidsworth, who he'd never met before. The so-called confession statement was recorded, and by the time it was over, Tommy had been there for over nine hours. He was finally allowed something to drink and a cigarette. A couple of hours later, Carl Fontenot was arrested and went through the same thing as Tommy had just hours before. Though the whole thing this time was a bit easier with Carl, he confessed far more quickly. Immediately after, though, he said that the whole thing was a lie. He later said he'd never been to jail before and he just told the cops what they wanted to hear to end the whole experience. He was innocent and just wanted the questioning to stop. He figured that the truth would be sorted out later. Carl and Tommy's confessions may have been taped and on the record, but they didn't make much sense when taken together. The general outline of the story was consistent. They'd gone to rob the store, abducted Denise, raped her and killed her, dumping the body. But none of the details matched up, not even how they'd killed her or where they'd left her body. 
On the 19th, Odell Titsworth was arrested. He had a record, a serious one, unlike the other two young men. He had four felony convictions on his record. And he wouldn't say a damn thing to the cops. After he was thrown in jail, he remembered that he'd actually been in a cast at the time Denise was abducted. He'd gotten into a fistfight, with the police no less, and had a cast on his arm. There was no way he could have been involved in the crime the way the other two had said he was. The press was informed that Denise's case had a break and that three men had been arrested. The police said that they were searching an abandoned building near the old power plant in Ada and that it had been burned down after her body had been dumped there. At the search, a jawbone was found, and this too was reported to the media. It turned out while the search was still ongoing that the property had been burned ten months before Denise's disappearance by its owner, and that the jawbone they found belonged to a possum. Meanwhile, Ron had been in and out of prison, again on the fraud conviction, with an ever-deteriorating mental state. The rumors of his involvement in Debbie Carter's death persisted, and his mother Juanita, in an attempt to put the matter to rest, went through her files. She was a meticulous woman and kept records and notes of everything and eventually found a receipt from the night of Debbie's murder. She and Ron had rented a VCR and five old movies and had sat in the living room together that night, watching them all until the early hours. The police had never dared go so far as to say that Juanita was lying when she said that her son had returned home at 10.30 that night. She was a well-respected member of the community, a business owner and a churchgoer. But they had said it was possible that Ron had snuck out of the house after she went to sleep and then made the short journey to Debbie's house to commit the crime. These receipts, though, meant that he hadn't. They'd been up together on the couch for most of the night. Juanita brought the receipts to the detectives and made a statement, with her lawyer watching her speak to camera from an adjoining room. But for some reason, the statement wasn't recorded, and no records of Juanita's visit to the police department that day were made. In 1985, Juanita passed away from ovarian cancer. The Williamsons fought to have Ron, who was still very ill and in prison, allowed out to visit her before her death and then to attend her funeral. After much fighting, this was allowed, but he was guarded by police officers both times and made to wear leg shackles and handcuffs throughout. At the time, he was only in prison for fraud on a $300 check. In September of 1985, the trial of Tommy and Carl for the murder of Denise Haraway began. There were 51 witnesses, but the main evidence against the two were their taped confessions and a few jailhouse snitches. Their defense teams fought to have the taped confessions thrown out and to have the trial moved from Ada, but neither happened, and they were both convicted. Tommy was sentenced to death. In January 1986, a year and a half after Tommy and Carl's convictions, a body was found out in a forested area in Gertie, about 27 miles from Ada. It was Denise. She had suffered a single gunshot wound to the head. The story that she had been stabbed, that the prosecution had told at the trial four months before, was bullshit. But they stood by it. 
The case, of course, eventually attracted attention, and a book was written about it in 1987, after a long investigation by a reporter from New York. The Dreams of Ada by Robert Mayer wasn't a glowing review of the justice system in Ada, to say the least. And it put a fire under the prosecution team and the police force in Ada to try and wrap up the other unsolved crime that they had. In the course of writing the book, Detective Smith had told the author about the Debbie Carter case, saying, We know Ron Williamson did it. We just can't prove it yet. They had basically no evidence. Some of the hair samples had finally been processed, years after they had first been submitted, and were deemed consistent with the hair samples given by Ron and Dennis Fritz way back when. But the print that had been left on the plaster had been deemed not a match to either men, nor to Debbie. If this was the case, then it was possible someone else had been in the apartment that night. Detective Smith decided that the best thing to do would be to exhume Debbie's body and take another set of handprints from her to compare to the piece of sheetrock that they had. Her parents gave permission, but shortly after, Detective Smith had a call from Peggy's sister. Peggy hadn't recovered from her daughter's death. She's never been the same since. And her sister Glenda wanted information to go through her to try and manage Peggy's expectations. Either way, the exhumation went ahead. And, miracle of miracles, the man who had initially discounted Debbie as the one who'd left the print, OSBI agent Jerry Peters, changed his mind. This print was in fact Debbie's, meaning Ron and Dennis could well have been in her apartment that night. Ron was arrested. He was living in an apartment in Ada at the time and made a few bucks mowing lawns with a broken mower. He'd been in and out of hospitals and institutions and rehabs and more off his meds than on them. And yet, when he was questioned about Debbie Carter's murder, he was consistent. He hadn't known her, he didn't see her, and he didn't do it. Dennis Fritz was also arrested. He lived in a house with his mother and aunt in Kansas City, Missouri, and was working as a painter. A SWAT team arrived to charge him with first-degree murder, while his aunt watched on in hysterics, not knowing what the hell was happening or why these men with submachine guns were in her house. Initially, Dennis thought that they'd just got the wrong Dennis Fritz. They took him to the local station where he point-blank refused to confess. He kept repeating, I have nothing to confess to. At one point, the cops got out the tape recorder after Dennis had said, okay, fine, I'll do it. And when they pressed play, Dennis said, quote, here's the truth, I did not kill Debbie Carter, end quote. He was subject to verbal abuse and threats, but never relented and refused to be extradited to Oklahoma, insisting that that whole process had to play itself out. They had no evidence, he said. Meanwhile, Ron was sent to the county jail where he caused absolute chaos until he was taken out for interview at the station again. Despite the fact that the police had access to video recording and audio recording, they weren't used. Nor was a statement taken and read over to Williamson. Instead, notes of the interview were taken, and those notes detailed a garbled conversation in which Williamson said he had followed a pretty girl home from the coach light, that she had been mean to him, and that he and Dennis Fritz had strangled her with a cord and stabbed her. The notes also said that he couldn't confess because he couldn't hurt his family anymore. Williamson was sent back to county where he continued to scream and yell and kick up. 
The jail was a tiny old concrete building, like a bunker, on the grounds of the courthouse in Ada, and his screaming could be heard all over the building. One of the guards there, though, John Christian, had hung around with Ron when they were kids and had played baseball with him, and he could get Ron to settle down when he was on shift. One night, when John was working, Ron called him over to his cell. Ron had a copy of the Dreams of Ada book and told him he might have a dream confession too. He said to Christian he'd been living in Tulsa and had come down to Ada after spending the day drinking and popping quaaludes and then went to the coach light. And after he had knocked on Debbie Carter's door and busted it in and raped her. He finished off the scenario with the question. Don't you think if I'd have killed her, I'd have left town? Christian repeated what Ron had said, and it soon got back to Detective Gary Rogers, who had Christian repeat the story for him, which Rogers typed up as a report. The joking scenario was now yet another quote-unquote dream confession. Pontotoc County seemed to be full of these kind of confessions. First the one that nabbed the boys for Denise Haraway's murder, and now, after years of a stalled investigation, there was another in Debbie Sue Carter's case. But would the county be able to get a conviction this time around? Next time, on the Mens Rea podcast. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, or tell a friend. It really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. A big thanks this week to our newest supporters on Patreon, and a particular thank you to Catherine Besler, who you heard introduce the podcast this week. This case was requested by her as a top-tier supporter of the podcast, and it's been so interesting to look at the American justice system for a change. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources can be found in our show notes or by visiting our website, www.mensreapod.com. This two-part series is primarily based on the book The Innocent Man by John Grisham. It's a highly recommended read, and you'll find the link to it in the notes, too. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do.